Hello. Welcome to the School Bridge Podcast. I'm Piers. I'm Maggie. And today we have episode 12, where we're talking about how you can get better student responses after you ask questions. Yes. And not just those red flag, really off answers, um, but the more nuanced ones where kids maybe give an okay response or an almost there response, but you want to push it to the next level. Right. Maybe the response they get is kind of the first thing that comes to mind, but it's not as deep as you want it to be. We're looking at ways that you can get that that deeper, that more rigorous response and certain techniques that you can use if a student gives you kind of a red flag answer or if they give you sort of a weak answer, what you can do as a teacher to to get to those better, deeper levels. Exactly. So being teachers, we thought of it as a lesson and really three times um, or chapters where we could apply some of these skills. So we were thinking for chapter one on writing the right question, structuring it properly so that you can start with a strong question. Chapter two, providing parameters and guidance for student thinking while they're processing that question. And then chapter three is, you know, after they've given a response, what feedback can we give? How can we respond to really deepen that, um, that response? So let's go right into structuring the right question. When you want to get those good student answers, it really comes down to the quality of your questions, mm-hmm. and and that's that's up to your lesson planning. When you're writing your questions, you know, are you writing open versus closed questions? Are you writing questions up and down the Bloom's ladder? But when you are lesson planning, you should be thinking about what student answer am I trying to get out of them, and how can I write the right questions so that I give them the best opportunity to give me that strong answer I'm looking for. Exactly. Every question that we ask is a learning opportunity, right? And so we want those questions to be strong so that we're maximizing that learning opportunity. And it's not saying that, you know, opened, open questions are better and closed are worse or, or whatever. They each have really important purposes and it's just what do you want in that moment, right? So open-ended question being there are many ways a, a kid could answer. There's not necessarily one right response, And then closed is like, hey, I want them to know this one thing, this one word. And if I use an open-ended question right here, it actually might kind of veer off. I'm sort of opening an opportunity for them to make a mistake. So they're both great. It's just which one should you use in that moment. Right. When you're crafting that lesson plan, you're thinking about if I want the best student response that I can get, maybe I'm giving them some, some opportunities to access the info right away. I've got some closed questions, like there is one right answer. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to use that that knowledge that we're going to build up to, we're going to scaffold it, and then get to those more open-ended questions later. Exactly, which goes along with Blooms that you just, just hinted at a second ago. And so that's another part of, of having good responses is at what level of, of rigor or understanding is your question, right? Are you just trying to establish sort of a baseline um, you know, basic understanding of something, or are you trying to push some really analytical, you know, synthesis type question? And again, both are good, but just be as purposeful as you can around when to use what type of question, thinking about how students will respond. And building off when you said what type of question, how many different verbs can you use when you're asking those questions? Mm. You know, for the lower level blooms, you know, they're just doing the remembering. That's pretty, It's you can write a good question like that. But when you get to the applying and the analyzing level, you might write one question with a certain verb. And then you might 
tweak it and add a second verb or a third verb that makes them just think about that question and their response ever so, ever so slightly differently. Mm-hmm. I love that. Or giving sort of a hypothetical. Maybe you pose a question that's at the applying level and then you do sort of a, okay, so if I were to change this, how would this other thing be impacted, right? Right. Maybe my verb is, you know, identify. And mm-hmm. then in a second question, it's describe. And then it's summarize or it's analyze. But pay attention to those verbs that you're using in your questions and look at it. Is there a logical sequence to your questions? Do you have a good Bloom's progression where you're going from low to high? At what goal do you have for the students to answer it? Like, is your standard at the applying level, but all your questions are at the understanding level? Make sure that you, you know, you do a little bit of your own homework where you look at your lesson plan and you say, okay, if I want to have strong student responses, what's the quality of my questions and am I at the right blooms the at the right blooms level? Exactly. It's all about the goal, right? What is your goal for this question? What is your goal for this learning opportunity? And so it's not just the way we phrase the question, but it's also the way that we're asking them to respond, right? And the main two that I think we can think of is a verbal response or a written response. And they're super different, right? right? Yeah. You know, if you, when you're doing your lesson plan, you say, am I going to have my kids just answer this out loud or do I want them to answer this in their notebook? Mm Because if they answer it in the notebook, not only does everyone get the chance to answer it, but you can kind of get a deeper picture of their understanding when they have to actually write out their answer. Yeah, you can walk around. You can circulate and look at what kids are saying. And in a way, you can hear from every child instead of two or three, right? I like that you said, you know, what's the goal? So when you're asking questions to the kids, what is your goal? You know, you're trying to get those better responses, but why? What mm-hmm. What are you leading towards? Are you leading towards, you know, connections to a prior lesson? Are you wanting them to be creative? And yeah, just always be purpose-driven with those questions or else, you know, if you just have a weak lesson plan, you might just be up in front of the classroom, just kind of riffing and asking questions out loud, sort of guessing where you're going. Yeah. But be strategic on which ones are they going to answer with a written response Mm -hmm. and which ones are okay getting a verbal response. Right. And they both have pros and cons. It's just a matter of, you know, what you want out of that response. You know, I mean, if they're doing it verbally and you have it in a a turn and talk or a group type setting, they're also getting social skills practice. They are also, you know, they're hearing responses from their classmates and maybe going, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of that. And then they can build off of it. Right. You know? Yep. Whereas if it's written – it's it's pretty solo and that can be good too because it can be they they get an opportunity to sort of take a deep dive into their own thinking um it also takes longer right so both are i think i would say both are important and both are great i use both of them all the time it's just you know what do you want from that question is it something you want to just kind of check in with a neighbor have a quick refresh your memory or do you want them to really dive deep and spend some solo time thinking I think in a previous episode, you brought up, what if you could only ask five questions during a lesson? Yeah. And I like thinking about that when I'm lesson planning, you know, what are the five most important questions that I need to ask? Mm -hmm. And making sure that those, that students have an opportunity to have a written response to those questions. Mm. Because I'm going to end up filling it with, you know, other check for understanding questions that try and bridge that gap between those five questions. Right. But- yeah, what is my most important question that I need a written answer for? 
because I need that data. I need to know that they've mastered it so they can move on. And I need to know who I need to check in with. Totally. There's some great quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's something like, you know, writing is the same thing as thinking. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because when we have to have that quiet time to write out a response, we can't just give sort of a you know, half put together thought and then move on. When we really are alone with that, we we dig a lot deeper. So we're still in chapter one. We're talking about structuring the right question. Mm-hmm. We've got to be good teachers and we have to have exemplar answers. Yes. You know, if we're going to ask our kids to answer this certain question, we do need to know what we're looking for. We need to think like our kids and write out, you know, what is the exemplar answer and then think about what might be the responses that the students are going to naturally respond with mm-hmm. and how can I bridge that gap between my exemplar and, you know, what maybe my quicker, quicker answerer students <laughs> will put down. Exactly. And I, I know we talked about this in a prior episode, but having exemplars changed my teaching. It absolutely changed my teaching. And I find a lot of the times when I'm going to write an exemplar answer to a question I have in the lesson that my response is, is pretty weak. And then I have the realization that, of course, it's not the a, a knowledge gap for me. Um, it's that the question only drove at so many things. And you can't figure that out until you think through how kids are going to respond. That's a great point. When you're writing the exemplar, you know, you know what you're looking for, but did the question lead you there? Right. And I also like thinking about, you know, when I'm writing my exemplars and I think, okay, I know that this group of students is probably going to get pretty close. I also like to put myself in some other students' mm-hmm. shoes and say, what is this student going to write? You know, they like to work a little bit quickly. They might be only giving <laughs> me a service level answer. What are they going to write? And then how can I make sure that they're moving towards that exemplar. What can I put, what supports can I put in my question to help them get there? Exactly. Yeah. And I think this all just kind of comes back to the same question of your goal, right? What is your goal of this question? Um, What's your purpose? And, you know, there are so many, like you said, checking for understanding or extending your thinking. Is it a test prep question, right? Are we providing an opportunity for our kids to engage with the type of question that they're going to see on a test? Well, then we need to, you know, have sample questions that we can model it off of. So it's really just being very cognizant of why you're putting a question in front of kids and what you're hoping that they'll do with it, you know? When you said the purpose of the question and you started talking about test prep, mm-hmm. I remember all the time going into Google Images and writing, you know, putting in the exact standard number to yes. see what sample questions will come up. And you notice, you know, how they're going to write these test questions. They might say, what is the best answer or what piece of evidence led you to this answer? Mm-hmm. And all of those are deeper level thinking responses that you're looking for from the kids. Yeah. So you jump in those Google images and look for your exact standard sample questions and then structure your own questions in your lesson plans so that they can get there. That's a great point. I kind of forgot about that hack, to be honest. That's a good one. So yeah, just like you said, be purpose-driven with your questions. If you want to, if our whole episode is about how to get better student responses, Mm -hmm. it comes down to how much time are we spending in our lesson plan writing those good questions so that they have that opportunity to get there. Exactly. I love that. All right. So that's before the lesson. Yeah, that's chapter one, writing the right question. Writing, structuring the right question. It's all in the lesson plan. There's a lot that goes into it. Use that lesson plan. Yeah. 
And now we have the question in front of the kids. We're in the room. We're in the room. How can we provide sort of parameters and guidance for them to engage with this question in a way that's going to drive towards, you know, better responses and kind of maximize that learning opportunity? So we're in the room and you're just about to ask the question, these are certain things that you can do. These are these are techniques that you can use so that when your kids are queued up and they're going to answer the question, these are some parameters that you can use to structure those responses. Exactly. And I think that the number one, probably underused, I still am guilty of not doing this enough, but also highest sort of um, return technique is just more processing time. Those seven seconds. Seven seconds. Wait seven seconds after you ask ask a question before taking responses. I don't even remember what that's from. Is it from make it stick or is it from how the brain learns? But I it's don't remember. Th- there was something with you should wait seven seconds. You should ask your question and then you should be good about not just calling on the first hand that comes mm-hmm. up. You need to wait those seven seconds. Now I'm thinking about oh I, I didn't do that today. <laughs> You, know, you can do it tomorrow. That's I'll do okay. it tomorrow. You know, the seven <laughs> seconds of wait time. And I need to, you know, narrate it for the kids. Like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to give everybody wait time so that, you know, you all have the chance to think about it. Exactly. I think, like, this is such an easy strategy, right? You literally do nothing, right? But there's actually a lot that goes into making it successful because it can feel weird to wait that long. And then if you have kids like, oh, 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 during the seven seconds, the kids who needed to think don't really have that time even though you're waiting. And so I think it's a good routine to set up, like you said, to sort of narrate and just say, no hands, no responses. Everyone just quietly think for seven seconds. I'll I'll tell you when you can raise your hand. Um, and just creating this environment of we all calmly think about our answers. Right. It gives you that little bit of processing time to come up with your answer it doesn't let you off the hook. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when a teacher asks a question and the first hand comes up, they sort of rob you of that opportunity to think about it because you realize, oh, they had it right away. I didn't. Let's just hear what they said. Exactly. And we know that extended processing time is an accommodation or a support for a lot of kids, but it's one of those things that it's actually better for every kid, right? And so we can provide supports to kids who really need and deserve it, but everyone benefits. Even kids who get their answer immediately can extend it and go deeper if they have more time. Right. And this is crucial for those really important questions. You know, sometimes it's doing a quick check for understanding. You're not going to wait that seven seconds just because you're having a one-on-one with a kid. Sure. But when you're asking those larger, deeper questions, give that wait time. Let the kids have a moment, have a break, have a beat to think about what their answer is going to be before you ask kids to raise their hands. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a quiet breath to ourselves too. Right. <laughs> you know, and sometimes that's when, you know, you want to have them write down their response before they raise their hand, just to give everybody that time to, to answer it. Sure. And then I think another thing, and you can pair this with the processing time is all the different cooperative learning moves that we, we have in our back pocket. Of course, the think pair share is sort of the, you know, true, trusted and true one. Um, But there's a lot that can push student responses in that moment, right? They have to think of their response, share it with someone else. They're hearing someone else's ideas. And that can be a really great tool for helping them learn more. Yep. You just ask the question, give them that think, pair, share, give them that stop and jot. But you're allowing that think time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. 
Perfect. And then let's say that you want to give a little bit more support. You can give sentence starters. Yes. And you don't just have to give sentence starters on an accommodated document. You can have it written on the board or you can say, on your stop and jot, I want everybody to start with this sentence starter. Exactly. That can be a really good way to push thinking. And you can pair that with processing time too. You can pose a question and then say, okay, now that you've got your response, I want to see if you can answer with this sentence starter. You right. know. And I remember I had a coach several years ago now um, talk me through the purpose of sentence starters and how they're she was talking about two main buckets and I had never thought of the second one. So I think we often think of sentence starters as a support, right? To jog someone's ideas and help them get started and push them in the right direction. But you can also do uh, sentence starters to extend thinking and actually push rigor. Um, you know, so for example, I teach social studies. Maybe we're talking about Mansa Musa and all the great things he did. I pose a question and I might say, Okay, go ahead and start with Mansa Musa went to. And then fill in your answer. Exactly. And now everyone knows sort of what to drive towards. Mansa right? Musa went to dot, dot, dot. Exactly. He went to Mecca on his pilgrimage, et cetera. But I could also flip that and use it to push their thinking toward a deeper level and say something like if Mansa Musa hadn't gone on his pilgrimage, finish the sentence. Right. I love that. You know, and now they're thinking at a much deeper level or a higher level on Bloom's. And it's still a really easy move on my part to just give them a few words to get started. You made me think for the sentence starters, it's a great time to put in technical vocabulary mm. and say, you know, I want you to use the word protons, and neutrons in your answer. Mm -hmm. But you could use a better sentence starter and you could say, I want you to start it with the difference between electrons and protons is exactly and then they fill in that part. Yep. Or when electrons, blah, 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 something. I don't know enough science to finish. You're that. good. Yeah. <laughs> but you could say, like, you know, when electrons bond with another atom, right. What happens to the charge? Right. Yeah. Right. So again, that I love sentence starters, um, but we can use them for all kinds of purposes, not just getting started. Right. You know? And all circling back to the main goal is to just try and get those better student responses. Mm -hmm. When you use sentence starters strategically like that, that is going to allow kids to have those better responses. And they can use that, you know, on a short answer paragraph, they can use it yes. in an essay later. You can do a show call and you could say, I want to see what you wrote after you said, you know, after we had because, what did you add there? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then you just mentioned this, but you know, you can pair that with with technical vocab, right? Anytime that we ask a question and we want a certain response or a deeper response, we can give words that we would like them to use. And this is true for every grade level and every content area. So yeah, go ahead. You were going to talk about like a, a younger classroom yes. art example. Yes. There was a brilliant elementary art teacher and it was like kinder first. And she was having her kids use words like shade and hue in place of color. And even, you know, little ones were getting new tools to talk about their content area. It was really cool. I think that's a great parameter. Yeah. Another one is when you limit the word count. Yes. I've noticed that if I don't have any parameters on the word count, some kids will write, you know, three sentences. Some will write, you know, half a sentence. But if I say you can use no more than 
12 words, mm-hmm. it, you know, it averages out. It has the students make the longer responses become more narrow and more specific. And the students who don't write all that much, they actually will add in more words and more technical vocab to try and get up to that 12 word limit. So when you have those those word limits on the answer, and it can be somewhat arbitrary, like sure. you can have no more than 15 words in here. It does help them be more strategic with what they're going to answer. It totally does. And our kids that are um, maybe good with words, but not necessarily answering the question, <laughs> right? When they right. just go on and on and and use random words and fillers and transitions, and it sounds good, but you're like, did you actually say anything? <laughs> <laughs> My kids are getting really good because we have a science word wall. And they'll just start filling in like, oh, I think it's the nucleus, Mr. Blythe. And you'd be like, <laughs> I know what you're doing. Like, you're just using these words that are somewhat right and you're almost there. Yeah. But I need you to give me a little bit more. I love that. Yeah. No, the, sometimes they're really, really good about making it sound like they know exactly li- what they're talking uh-huh. about. But then you ask me, oh, can you rephrase that in a different way? Mm-hmm. Or could you use... Uh, when you ask them to define a word and then they use that same word in the definition. Yes. <laughs> yes. Just have them structure it in a slightly different way to get that better student response. Because, I mean, they're experts. These kids are smart. Oh, they're so clever. Right. They listen to you all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll just regurgitate or parrot back to you what you're saying. Exactly. And, you know, again, it's the whole point of this is to maximize learning. Every question is a learning opportunity. And, you know, it's not about us that's about them and so if we can you know limit the word count it might push them to synthesize that information better or maybe they start you ask the question and you know you say okay you have no more than two sentences and then you go back and you're like okay now it's no more than one i need you to cut it in half and you keep paring it down until you're like you have eight words you get eight words to answer this question yep and with each edit they have to figure out what is the most important thing to say. And that can be a really fun exercise. I love that. Let's say you have pared it down to about eight words. Mm -hmm. Then you can write them up on the board together as a class and say, how can we make this better? How can we get it down to seven words? Yeah. And you're all defining it together. You're all answering it together. Yeah. You can even go around the room. If you only have that few, if each kid only has a couple words, you can say, okay, raise your hand if you had proton in your sentence. Right. And they probably all will because they only had so many words and you know as the teacher you were hoping that they would get to that place right you know? or i mean let's flip it on its head you might have a word limit sometimes mm-hmm. other times you might say i need your answer to have the word because yes and then and then after it i need to see you know a good strong detailed sentence but i'm only going to be reading after the word because mm-hmm. and i want to see you know what connections you're making Totally. And you compare that with the other ones, right? You can say add because and use the word theocracy, right? Or add because and, you know, say because he went to blah, blah, blah. You know, you can put a lot of these these techniques together um, based on what you want kids to get to. Yep. And I think one of the things, that, you know, we sort of mentioned this, but you want to make sure that every student has the opportunity to come up with their own answer. Yes. And they're not just, you know, opting out in a sneaky way where they're just going to parrot what somebody else said. Mm-hmm. You know, parroting is when, you know, you might give a great response like why Mansa Musa went to Mecca. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to repeat to the teacher what you said. <laughs> I'm just going to parrot what you said, but I'm going to make it sound like, you know, 
like I agree with you. Like I actually really agree with Maggie's point that you know he went to Mecca for this wonderful journey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Like I don't really know, but I'm you know I'm just trying to deflect the attention away from me. You know, and use mm-hmm. some form of flattery and then parrot your answer. Right. And that's just something to be aware of. I mean, that's a good life skill, honestly. But again, if we're trying to get them to learn a certain thing and they're repeating, right, that's that's the lowest level of blooms. And so maybe, like you said, having them rephrase it or giving them a new word to use in their response. And if everyone's parroting, that maybe is a cue to me as the teacher that they need more supports. Maybe they need a little more processing time or a turn and talk, or um, maybe I need to give them a little more information before I pose the question again. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the parroting gives you some feedback that maybe that kid wasn't quite right there, Mm -hmm. but they heard enough just to repeat it back to Mm -hmm. you. Exactly. All right. So we've talked about structuring the right questions before you teach the lesson. Mm -hmm. We've talked about now that you're in the room and you are asking the question, and certain parameters that you can use to try and elicit a better response. What if kids give you the response and it's just not there? This is the last chapter. Exactly. And again, maybe it's really off or maybe it's it's okay. And we just we know that they can do better and we know that we can help drive towards, you know, deeper levels of understanding. And there's a lot we can do. You know, a lot of it is just being aware and really listening, being present and listening to what they're actually saying. Right. You know, and hopefully your classroom environment is set up where you can do that deep listening and everyone's focused on the speaker. Mm -hmm. But one of the mistakes you'll see a lot of teachers make is when a student has a partially correct answer. Yes. You'll be tempted to finish that answer for them or to round it up. Mm -hmm. You know. They'll start with it being correct, but they won't quite get there. And you're worried that the whole class is going to misunderstand something. Mm-hmm. So you finish it for them. Yeah. And that's called rounding up. Yeah. You don't want to round up their answers. You want to kind of rephrase it so that you give the student an opportunity to finish it for you. Exactly. Yeah. If they give a little bit of a response or just the beginning of a response and we say, we finish it or we say, oh, I think what you meant to say was, you know, and it can be so tempting, but we're we're actually removing a learning opportunity if we do that and so what we should do instead is provide different supports right say okay you're almost there turn and talk with a neighbor right or again all the things that we had in class use this word um start with this sentence but be aware that they're only giving a little bit of an answer and even though we are trying to help do not do not give them the answer no and sometimes they'll just spam you with answers. Like you'll ask a question and they'll just like, <laughs> they'll answer, but they'll read your face and they'll know that they're wrong. So they'll just spam you with another answer. Yep. And then they're just kind of fishing for the right thing so that you'll let them off the hook and then move on. You know, yes. they'll just be like, oh, it's positive. Oh, it's negative. Oh, it's neutral. And they're just kind of like firing back at you. And then you're like, wait, okay, all right. What's your answer? Yes. And really make sure that they give you that detailed response. Don't just let them spam you with with jargon from class. Exactly. I actually I remember this was a few years ago now, but it was that Mansa Musa question about his, you know, the significance of his pilgrimage. <laughs> and a kid went, religion, theocracy, Islam, Africa. <laughs> it must be so, it must be one of those. And I was like, you're not wrong, but you're not saying anything. Let's try this again, you know. Um and again, just 
the whole point is to get them to learn the thing that you're driving towards. And it can be hard to create that safe classroom space where they're okay being vulnerable and taking those risks. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times they just want to deflect the attention away from them. Yeah. But, you know, just use that positive praise. Make sure that they, that when they do give that great answer, you're supporting them and encouraging others to do the same. Exactly. I was just thinking, okay, so let's say a kid gives a good answer. Right. Right. Um, don't just let it go, right? Be Praise that very specifically and, and share with the class, almost think aloud why that was a great response because then other kids can sort of glean onto that and replicate it and go, oh, he said this or she shared this word or, you know, um, they started their question this way. And we can always ask for connections too. Yeah, yeah. I love that you used, you know, mass in your answer as opposed to wait. We make that mistake often. Mm -hmm. I loved the vocab that you used, you know, great job. Would you mind repeating it one more time for us? Yes, exactly. And then, you know, you can follow that up with, can you make a connection to anything else that we've learned? Right. Or you can bounce around to somebody else and be like, what other connection do you have? Yeah, Exactly. That's a good way to go off to another student and say, okay, that was such a great response. Now, how can we connect that to something else, you know, or even different content areas too? You know, I love when I can find there's a little more science and social studies crossover than, you know, you might think at first. And when we learn about a new achievement or a new advancement or something, and I can say, does this remind you of anything from science? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've noticed that when I start bouncing around like that and I ask the kids to, you know, extend an answer, somebody will raise their hand and have, you know, an interesting tangent or something contrarian that they want to share. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're like, oh, let's pull on that thread a little bit. Let's go along that tangent. And then you can kind of weave back and say, oh, okay, can anyone summarize like all of the answers that we just shared into kind of one succinct thought? Yeah. And you just kind of bring in everyone back. You can go back to writing it down on paper. But when you kind of go down that tangent and you're getting really, really good responses, but it's kind of being dominated by a small handful of kids, mm -hmm. it's a good way to get back on track with your lesson and say, all right, we've said a whole bunch of great stuff. Let's mm -hmm. go back to this key question that we have on the board. Let's add in what so-and-so said there. Yep. And... Let's give ourselves the opportunity to have one more great response. Yes. And you might even go a little rogue because, I mean, we know lesson planning is huge, but we also know we are working with humans and young humans and things can sometimes, you know, like you said, you might go off on this tangent that you as the teacher are, are thinking this is worth diving into. This is worthwhile. And so maybe you go rogue on your lesson and you say, okay, now actually everyone get out a piece of paper and you think of a question in your head that can help them synthesize all that. You weren't planning on it. You weren't planning on having them write. But it's okay to, to give them that opportunity. Yeah. I love it. Good job. And yeah. then I think, you know, all right, we've talked about what if they only give half of an answer. Yeah. But what about the straight opt out? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like, hey, Mr. Blythe, why <laughs> did uh, Mansa Musa go on that pilgrimage? Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, we all have that. Yeah, like <laughs> the problem is, is sometimes I genuinely don't know, or other times I just don't want to answer. Right, and we we dove pretty deeply into this on our our episode on question strategies, but I think the the key piece is to not allow them to opt out. Right, maybe they don't know, or maybe they just don't want to respond. But either way, don't let them 
you know, be removed from that learning. And so we can use some of the strategies we talked about to help them get ready to answer the question instead. You know, normalize not knowing. It's okay to not know, but we do need to figure it out. Right. You know, okay. No, I hear you. Yeah. Like, like okay. So you don't know. That's, That's fine. okay. Yeah. But I am going to come back to you. Yes. You know, who can help me out? Like, can you, uh, sometimes I'll let you phone a friend mm-hmm. or I'll say like, all right, all right. I get that you don't know. And you're probably not the only one who doesn't know right now. So I appreciate that you're okay. You know, you've got that courage to admit it. But I am going to come back to you and we're going to help everybody else who may not know. Mm -hmm. But let's get a response from someone who does think that they know. Exactly. But know that I'm going to come back to you. Exactly. I'm not going to let you just parrot the answer that they said, but I am going to hold you accountable. I'm not going to let you opt out. Exactly. And sometimes when I do phone a friend, I actually... I, I tell them that I, I'm not allowed to hear a classmate tell the kid I asked. So they have to go over like and almost whisper it to them yeah. so that they truly are only getting the information and they maybe they are regurgitating it at that point, but they still know that they were held accountable and it was a safe and supportive environment to find the answer. Right. Yeah. When the student says, I don't know, it just, it buys them a small bit of time, Mm -hmm. but you have to let them know that you're going to come back to them, but you support them no matter what. Yeah. And then praise them when they get it, you know, because sometimes we know, especially with certain age groups that when they say, I don't know, they definitely know. They are just self-conscious and don't want to look, you know, like they're wrong or they don't know or whatever. Yeah. So give them some love when they get it right and maybe... They'll say, I don't know, a little bit less. Right. And you know that you might have some deep knowledge about something, but when someone puts you on the spot, the stress goes in your brain and you're afraid (laughs) to speak. So it's down. Yeah, you shut down. So it's just easier to say, I don't know. And be like, all right, well, hang on. Let's build on a couple of things that you do know. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, who was Mansa Musa? Exactly. Exactly. And then, all right, now let's go to, all right, what was his pilgrimage for? And then I'm going to come back to you. Um, and then can you summarize what so-and-so just said? Right. So you can phone a friend. You can use blooms to ask a um, a lower level sort of, you know, lower hanging fruit type question that you know they will know. You can give them a sentence starter. Oh, what if I, what if you use this word, you know, um, a turn and talk. There are lots and lots of things we can do. But I think as long as you are setting up an environment where they know they will be held accountable and that you will help them get there, then you're doing it right. Right. And I think that's probably, you know, we're going, we've gone through these chapters. We've Mm -hmm. talked about what you do before you actually plan the lesson. We've talked about what you do right before you ask the question. I would say that the the time where you're going to spend the most effort getting better student responses is immediately after you ask a question Mm -hmm. and you get those first responses. I agree. You, you know, you're going to get kind of a canned stock answer sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if your question's not that high quality. Right. Right. You're just kind of going through the motions and you decide to, you know, throw out that question. Like, what's the difference between these two things here? And someone might say, well, that one's blue. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but then, you you know, you go with, well, what hue? What shade? Like, yeah. why is this one blue? Yeah. And you need to kind of pull on those threads after the kids first answer that question that's how you get those better responses. Yeah. All three chapters that we talked about are super connected, right? Asking the right question, sort of um, asking it in the right way, providing those parameters and guidance, and then our response, our, our feedback and our follow-up. And um, yeah, even just, just focusing on one of those things at a time will help you get better responses. Just don't settle. Don't settle for those no. first can stock answers. Nope. Just know there's certain things you can do. 
you can have kids phone a friend, you can rephrase it, you can have kids, you know, you can limit their word count, you can have them add in because, you can use technical vocab. Sentence starters. Right. There's all sorts of ways that you can elicit better student responses from the kids. There's just a couple techniques you learn to use. Yeah. And if it feels overwhelming, try to just pick one, right? Pick one and practice that and add another one the next week, you know? Well, we appreciate you all for listening. Have a wonderful week. We hope that your students have the best responses ever. Yeah. And thank you for listening to School Bridge. See you soon. See you soon.